tonight, we finish Genesis, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, uh, concluding this study, a great study it's been, a great time uh, building on this foundational book in Scripture, the first book in the Bible, looking back at creation and, and building a great foundation for understanding God's ways Right, And we're still not going to put it all together. We're still not able to entirely figure out God's ways, but we're building a foundation. And we're building upon this foundation of who God is, what he's done, his perfect plan, how he even further has a perfect plan for redemption that gets played out throughout the entire Bible. Right, We get to see all of that through the Bible. But here in Genesis, it's the foundation that is laid. And, and we see how, how things have progressed over time. Uh, We are constantly being reminded of God's promises throughout the book of Genesis, um, that he always keeps his promises, that he has a perfect plan and will fulfill it, even when we mess things up. I don't know about you guys, I've learned a lot through Genesis of people's mistakes, right? We read a lot, it's like every other chapter, it's like, oh, there was blessing, and then people took matters into their own hands, and they mess things up. And then the next chapter, oh, there's blessing again because you're walking in the ways of the Lord. And then the next chapter, and then they took matters into their own hands again. And then they messed things up. And then God stepped in. And there's blessing. It's just this back and forth, right? It felt like every other chapter we're, we're going through in the book of Genesis like that. And so when we, we get to see, though, the faithfulness of God and how he fulfills his promises, even when we mess things up. Even when we take matters into our own hands and we think that we know better, we think that we've got it figured out, or we fall victim to the lie of the enemy, right? We get deceived and we fall victim to that. We, we, we take those matters into our own hands and we doubt the promises of God and not trying to fulfill God's promise without God. But then he's like, no, no, I'll fulfill the promise the right way. And so we've seen a lot of that throughout this book and we're gonna continue to really, you get to see that throughout the Bible And we can look at that and testify of that in many of our own lives, how we take matters into our own hands, and yet God needs to show up and intervene and fulfill his promise the right way when we try to fulfill the promise for him. Here we are, chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So before we even jump right into this, we have to just remind ourselves a little bit. Chapter 49, Jacob died. Jacob who is called Israel. His name was changed to Israel, right? In a representation of the promise of God and the blessing of God, that God would pour out his blessing on this nation of Israel and God would use this family, the descendants of Jacob, who would be the tribes of Israel, and God was pouring out blessing on them. And so chapter 49, God brought Jacob to a place of a spiritual high, Right, And he was in the, the, the greatest spiritual strength that he'd ever had. He was in that place right before his death. Jacob blessed the, his sons, which was then blessing the tribes of Israel. And then Jacob presented his final will in the final verses of chapter 49. 
that he wanted to be buried in Canaan where his heart was at. And so then in this, these first few verses, as we read, we read of the preparation of the body of Jacob. And in that, uh, we see Joseph, first of all, taking the lead in the process. Joseph, who, who really took this hard, right? He struggled hard with the loss of his father because that's what death does, right? We face loss, we face death, and it hurts. And we go through this pain, and as we go through it, we have to figure out how to handle all the situation that is in front of us, right? And so here's Joseph in that place, handling this loss of his father and yet needing as well to take the lead in the burial of his father because there was a desire of him as well as a request from his father that he would be honored in his death. So he struggled with this, but he worked through it. And he wept and he mourned through it because that's what happens. These are natural things when we face death. And there's kind of a full circle here, right? This chapter we're looking at, chapter 50, it's, there's a lot of death that we're talking about. We're going to be talking about the death here of Jacob, and we're talking about the death also of Joseph. And so in this, we see the close of the, cha- of the book of Genesis, it ends with death. The beginning of the book of Genesis started with life, and it actually was intended for eternal life. Right, But what happened? Sin entered the world, and when sin entered the world, it brought death. We weren't made for it. And you know what? Sin and death along the way really messed things up, didn't it? And doesn't it still? It hurts. We suffer through these things. We suffer through loss, but we get to see in this, this whole book of Genesis in its entirety, the beginning and the end of these things. We see the effect of death here and now how Joseph is weeping and mourning over the loss of his father because that's normal. Because we, within ourselves, we were not created for death, we were created for life and we were created not to, we don't know how to handle it. So what do we do? We weep, we mourn. Sometimes we get a little ugly. That's what we're seeing here. He fell on his father's face and he wept over him and kissed him. And then he takes care of business. It's part of the process. He calls on the physicians, the servants, the physicians to embalm his father and so they did. Joseph had great influence here in Egypt because you see, they follow that and he, he commands them to do it. They do it And then even further, all of Egypt joined Joseph in mourning the loss of his father. What influence he had. And just 400 years later, he was forgotten. Right? You start reading Exodus and you're like, oh, what happened to that? What happened to Joseph? What happened to the influence that he had and all the support that he had? The people were mourning with him over the loss of his father. And now they're all in slavery. All the Jews are are in slavery now. He had great influence. He commanded these physicians. They go through the process here. It's a 40-day process that was customary for the Egyptians. The Egyptian culture made a big deal 
of this process. And you can look, you can look, uh, you know, study the history of it in the, a lot of the process. It's a little bit gross we don't have to get into. Uh, but it is quite a process that carried on over 40 days, and it was preparation of the body as well as the burial site as well as the coffin, Right? And there was so much attention and detail put into all of these things. And Jacob was getting all of that. It was a big deal. Jacob was getting the royal treatment because of Joseph's influence in Egypt. And further, the people mourned for 70 days. Also a customary thing for the Egyptian culture. They mourned 70 days with Joseph over the loss of his father because of his great influence. Continuing verse four, then now when the the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he, as he made you swear. Joseph, uh, no doubt, was diplomatic, right? And he's learned this throughout his life. Early on, as a young man, he wasn't as diplomatic when he went to his brothers and said, Hey, you guys are going to bow down to me one day. Right? It, didn't, it wasn't so diplomatic, was it? Then they, what did they do? They took him, threw him into a pit. Right? Nah, no, let's not throw him into a pit. Let's sell him to slavery instead. Right? And all of this many years of suffering that followed, he learned to be a little bit more diplomatic over time. And here he is in that approach, in, in approaching Pharaoh to say, my father made me promise and, and I need to uphold this promise. And now, because I'm a man of my word, I give you my word that I will return. Now, he's diplomatic in that approach to ask permission that he could go and that he didn't just run, right? And like, I got to fulfill this promise. I got to go take care of my father, right? I'm going to go bury my father. That's, what's, that's what I made a promise for and everything else, so be it. But instead, he gives that honor to Pharaoh. He maintains a relationship with the Egyptians. If Joseph fled then and there, there could have been some serious problems, right? And he took his family with him. And now now what's going to happen? The Egyptians are going to have to come after him or whatever it may be. We don't exactly know, except that Joseph took the diplomatic approach to maintain that relationship. And then... Being a man of his word, Pharaoh allowed it because he knew, hey, you made a promise to your father. I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you and I'm gonna help you uphold that promise. And because you're so diligent in upholding the promise to your father, I know you're a man of your word, so when you promise me you're coming back, I believe you. And now understand that Joseph was very valuable to Pharaoh He was the second in command. He had foretold that the famine uh, was coming, right? We're going to have seven years of of flourishing and then seven years of famine. We need to prepare, prepare for it. Joseph essentially saved the Egyptians. They would have starved with the famine. So many people would have died. 
And so Pharaoh knows it. He knows the value that Joseph is to him as an advisor, as this second in command, as a, somewhat of a prime minister is the idea of who Joseph was. And so uh, he had great value. Joseph knew it. Pharaoh knew it. But they handled it in a diplomatic way. And so further, verse 7 then, so Joseph, a man of his word, mind you, Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Now note that he left the little ones, the kids they left behind, maybe even to just represent, hey, we're coming back. We left our kids behind. You know, like back, I don't know if they still do this, years ago, if you were going to buy a car from somebody, like a private, you know, somebody selling their car, like, all right, leave me your credit card so, while you take it for a drive or something like that, right? It's like, well, I'm going to leave my kids. How about that? So I'm coming back for my kids, obviously, hopefully, right? I mean, you never know. <laughs> you could keep them a little while longer there in Egypt. But no, there's this, there's this promise even with that, that they leave the children and the livestock all behind, that they would need to come back for their loved ones, for that, those that belong to them. So further, verse uh, 9, then, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father." Nowhere in Scripture is there such an elaborate burial recorded. There's great attention given to this and focus. Jacob, Israel, with a military escort, with a whole mourning entourage with a with protection from pharaoh for the journey with representation from pharaoh and chariots and everything that they needed for the journey it was truly an honor to the life of jacob a celebration of the life of jacob and this what an example it is to what we we like to do in memorial services today Right? We have funeral services, we have memorial services, and that is to honor those who have passed away. It's a celebration of life lived here, but for the believer, even more, it's a celebration of eternal life, isn't it? And so we see this great celebration for a man 
who is changed by God. And his sons honored his wishes here, it tells us, that they did as he commanded. And what's interesting is that most often, the sons of Jacob were a disappointment to him, weren't they? In life, they constantly disappointed their father. Oh, we lost Joseph. Here's his coat. Later on, going to Egypt, they come back empty-handed, they could get into all sorts of trouble because of what they had done. And they, leave, they had to leave Benjamin behind. And we have to, all these problems that we're facing. Constantly coming back to their father like, hey, man, it's, uh, it's more bad news. Until finally they say, hey, your son Joseph is alive. But now in death, after a life, honestly, life that was lived that they would constantly disappoint their father. Now they honor him in death, finally. But this indicates change in them. They were changed through all of these many years of turmoil, of putting themselves through misery and living a lie and now seeing redemption through all of it. Now they're changed, changed men who are honoring their father not holding on to regret, but moving forward in hope. You see, that's what we need to do when we face death. Not holding on to regret, but moving forward in hope. I read a great quote today, and it was just a blessing for me today. It's a, I don't know who it's by, but it was a good quote. It says, tragedy doesn't ruin us. Hopelessness does. Hold on to hope however you can. You see, we face so many losses in life. We face so much tragedy. And honestly, more and more all the time, there's, there's more loss. And maybe it's little things sometimes that just frustrate us. Or maybe it's big things that really cut deep. But we don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope. We can move forward in the hope of heaven. Knowing that, you know what, this world will disappoint us. And we will face trial, tribulation. Jesus said it. In this life, you will face trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And there is a, a definite perspective that Joseph has that this family is gaining of hope. And you remember we talked about the life of Jacob that he was such a pilgrim, right? Moving about constantly, passing through this land to the next, and, and that perspective that we get of eternity, that we are sojourners, we're pilgrims. We're passing through this life, and we have a hope of eternity. And it took a while for Jacob to finally understand that. You know what? When he did, that's when it was over, right? That's when he died. 
But Joseph, pressing on in that perspective, and for us, we need to press on in that perspective. Not holding on to regret. That's how we can celebrate life during such times as these. Such times of suffering and of pain. That's how we can celebrate life. It's only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope. That's how we endure such suffering. I've said it so many times before, and having gone through such tragedy in life, I could tell you that there is no way to get through the next day without the hope of Jesus. So they followed through. They buried him in the cave that Abraham had purchased. The burial place of Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah, it tells us. Leah, who Jacob seemingly neglected as a wife, but honored her even in her death. We continue verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of all the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants." So Joseph's brothers, they had a little relapse here. <laughs> they're working it out, you know. They're growing in their in understanding, and, and they're, they're being changed over time. But now here, they're like, they're just afraid. Oh, man, we were really awful to Joseph for a long time, 20 years. I mean, that's a long time. We, and we left him for dead twice, right? I mean, this is not a good situation. So maybe he was just holding on to relationship for dad's sake. And now that dad's gone, what's he going to do to us? Now there's a recognition of guilt here as well, that they were wrong. They were afraid, though. Great fear came over them after Jacob's death. Maybe he'll repay us, right? They're admitting fault. We were wrong. We were so wrong. We had done so many terrible things. And in that, they were fearing justice. And Joseph, he certainly had all the power to make them pay, to make them suffer for what they had done to him. Right? And that's what they're afraid of, that he's going to make them pay. But they misjudged the situation, didn't they? What are they doing again here? They're taking matters back into their own hands. Not trusting the work of God. God already made a way for them to be delivered and saved through the famine. 
right? God already brought them into reconciliation with their brother. And there's great promise fulfilled in that. There's great hope in all of that. And yet they're like, whoa, hold on. I don't know. Do we really need to believe this right now? Should we really believe it right now? Or are we going to take matters into our own hands again? So that's what they do. And in this, they come up with a plan. The same idea, the same thing we see throughout the entire book of Genesis, people taking matters into their own hands and coming up with their plans. And in their plan, they send a messenger. Before your father died, the messenger, they said, hey, you need to go. Here's what you need to say to Joseph. Try to like soften things up. Make sure that we're okay. Before your father died, and there's this whole script to follow. This was likely a made-up story. Okay, this, they, they, like, there's nowhere that records that Jacob said these things. Jacob saw the, the reconciliation, right? He believed it. Joseph certainly was walking in that reconciliation, but here they are. Hey, we gotta just make sure we're okay. So they make things up, but nonetheless, they felt unworthy to ask for mercy from their brother. They send a messenger ahead. And, and for us, guys, we need to realize there's so many things that we have done in life, right? And that we still do every single day that we are in desperate need of mercy, and we look to Jesus and we, we need to just ask. We need to confess our sins. First John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we need to do is confess and come before him and be open and honest and, and, and be reconciled to God. And there, we get this picture here of, of what we often do when it comes to God. And there's this whole religious system that's been built that puts a separation between us and God. So somebody else ask for mercy. I can't do it. And maybe you feel this way sometimes. You're like, I'm too messed up. I've done all the worst things that you could imagine. Thrown my brother into slavery. It's a mess. But... We can come directly to God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask. Directly, we can ask God because of Jesus, because he died on the cross. And so here, these brothers of Joseph want to soften things up and see what's going on and see if everything's okay and and how do we proceed from here? What if he's mad at us? What if he's, he's going to now repay us? But then it says that Joseph wept. Joseph wept at their doubt, their fear. And those two things will often go hand in hand, right? When we start to doubt, then we start to get afraid. And we fear that the worst may happen and there's no way that God's promise can be fulfilled. Because of all of this madness, because of all of this chaos and because of all the terrible things that I've done and all the suffering that I go through, it's not possible that God can fulfill his promise. These are the lies that we begin to believe. 
And that's where Joseph's brothers were at. And Joseph wept at this misunderstanding of his character and the kindness, the mercy that he had already given. Right? We read in Romans that his kindness is what leads us to repentance, not our own retribution. And that's what they were worried about, was retribution. Oh, no. What are we going to do? We need mercy. Joseph wept at that. He wept at their doubt and fear. And he wept still over the pain of death, much like Jesus who wept over the doubt and the fear and the pain that sin had brought in death. Verse 19, then Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? What, what a proclamation here. Do not be afraid for who am I? I am not God is what Joseph is saying. Yet we have a beautiful picture of Christ here, don't we? We have a great example of the grace of God, but he's saying, who am I? I'm not God. What are you, why are you coming to me and bowing to me and saying that you're my servant? I don't hold your life in my hand. I've already given this all over to God in reconciliation. You should too. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, first of all, he's giving recognition where recognition is due, honor where honor is due, honor to God. Who am I in the place of God? No, listen, God has been in control throughout this entire situation. Even when you threw me into the pit, even when you sold me into slavery, God still worked together for good because God had a plan in the midst of all of our stupidity. And God is to be glorified. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Guys, don't you know, you have no power over me. And I have no power over you. But we submit to God. And then this recognition, or this, this, this truth that he speaks. Now therefore, because God is in control, because God is in charge of this situation, and not you or me, good thing. Because if we were in charge, this would be a lot worse than it already is. But because of that, now therefore, because God is in control, do not be afraid. And because God is in control, we don't have to fear. Because God is in control, I will provide for you. He's not even saying because I'm in control, I'll provide for you. He had the ability to say I have within my power to provide for you. No, but because God is in control, because God has shown himself faithful through these many years of suffering, because God has brought reconciliation, then we're going to walk in that reconciliation. And as we walk in that reconciliation, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make a way for you and for your little one. Oh, more, than, more than just you, I, I've got your best 
in mind. Because God is good, I've got your best in mind. Because God is good, I'm gonna take care of you and your little ones, your kids. The blessing goes beyond just this relationship. And we've come a long way, haven't we? But we've come so far that I'm even gonna take care of your kids. And he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. He didn't reminisce about, hey guys, remember that time you threw me in the pit? Remember when you pulled me out of the pit and then you sold me to slavery? He spoke kindly. This speaks of compassion and mercy. The kindness that leads to repentance. He spoke with that compassion and that kindness and comforted and strengthened his brothers. He said, do not be afraid. Joseph, as he comforts his brothers, he says, I will provide. Guys, this is grace. Not only am I not gonna hold you accountable for all the wrongs that you've done to me, but I'm gonna provide for you and your kids. And then on top of that, come on, let's get a hug. On top of that, let's have some good fellowship with each other. I mean, that's grace, isn't it? Grace is, not, is getting what we don't deserve. And when we, for them, they deserved retribution, didn't they? They deserve to be repaid evil for evil on human terms. But grace says, no, you're, you're not going to get the evil. You're going to actually get good. You're going to be blessed. This is Joseph as a picture of Christ. Through all the wrong that is done, he says, here's grace. Here's not just an escape from death, but here's a gift of eternal life in the heavenly places. This is the story of Jacob, grace, constantly taking matters into his own hands. This is the story of Jacob's family. It's grace. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of us. It's grace. This certainly is the story of Genesis. As we bring the book to a close in just a few moments here, that's the story to remember. So many people misunderstand this book of Genesis and think that there's so much wrath and judgment poured out. But there's so much grace poured out. Because what we need to recognize is that sin is wicked and ugly and brings about death and destruction. Yet God still redeems and restores and reconciles. That's what we see taking place. Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household meaning with his brothers, right? They still continued in fellowship. They still had relationship. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim, his children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. 
So Joseph lived 110 years, a good long 54 years after his father had died with the blessing of many direct descendants and then even influence within his whole family brought up around him. In verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will keep his promises and bring you back to Canaan. You see, at this point, Joseph was, in a sense, the deliverer, right? He had saved them. And they maybe had this idea that he was going to bring them back to Canaan, which is the land of promise. But now he's saying, guys, I'm dying. But God will keep his promises. Let there be no doubt about it. God will surely visit you. What a great recognition, once again, of who's in control. He said, look, I'm dying, but I'm not God. I already told you that a long time ago. But God will visit you. That's better than me. That's better than anything else, any other blessing. God will visit you. God will bring you back to Canaan. Verse 25, then Joseph took, on, took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, as he, he makes them make this promise, right? He took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry, you shall carry my bones from here. This comes into fruition, right? He too eventually was brought up out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 13, it says this, so God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. It actually happened. And so Joseph, he died. And we see, as I said, Genesis begins with creation and life. Beautiful, glorious life. It ends here with death. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of Joseph. Verse 22 says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. This is a man of great faith who made a proclamation of faith to say that you are going to be delivered and you're going to take me with you. The people of God will be delivered from this land of Egypt. And, and they didn't even know all that was in store for them. The 400 years of slavery that would follow. But Joseph had great faith. Genesis begins with creation and ends with a coffin. Begins with glory and ends with a grave. 
But what we see here is that throughout Genesis, the lie of the devil is exposed. What did the devil say? When he lied to Eve, he deceived Eve. He said, surely you will not die. But then we see a whole 49, or all these chapters to follow, right? In which there's death and lots of it. God had to completely destroy the earth with a flood, but showed grace through an ark. Nations were wiped out entirely. We look at Sodom and Gomorrah and the wickedness and the sin that brought direct destruction. God had to cast judgment over the sin, but God warned them from the beginning. The devil said, surely you will not die. Well, I think God proved the devil to be wrong. And you know what? Ever since, the devil is being proven wrong over and over and over. But he lied. Surely you will not die. They did. But now, by the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Through that, he continues to make the devil a liar. We see that that truth that sin brought destruction and death as God said it would. We see that sin and death cause men to doubt the promises of God. And we see God's grace through it all. We see his hand through it all. We see it throughout this book. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament and we see it throughout all of history. God's grace, amazing grace. And we see that God has and always will keep his promises. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for this, this great book of Genesis. We thank you for the, the blessing of it, the foundational truths of it. Lord, that we would see, that we would see our own sin, Lord. That we would recognize the effect of sin in our lives. And Lord, that we would see how desperate we are for redemption for you. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And, and what we, when we study a chapter like this, we can, we can really look forward with hope to eternity. That hope of eternal life, of everlasting life comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. And we don't have to look at the, the destruction, but we can see our sin for what it is and that our sin brings death and destruction. But 
The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I invite you today, if you've never entered into relationship with Jesus, you've never invited him in to be your Lord and Savior, would you do that tonight? And you can pray this prayer with me. They're simple words, but it's an expression of faith, an expression of the heart. You could say, dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I need you. I put my trust in you. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. I give you my life. I want you to be my Lord and my savior. I want to live for you. In Jesus' name.